Welcome to the Truth Wars podcast with Dr. Olin Stubbs. If this podcast has encouraged you in any way, we'd like to ask you to leave a review for Truth Wars on whichever platform you listen on. Now, here's Olin. Zechariah chapter 3. And don't be ashamed if you have to use the table of contents. Nobody's watching you. If you don't want to use this table of contents, go to Matthew. We all know where that's at. And then go back two books to the left. Okay, that's the easy way to find it. Zechariah chapter 3. And let me give a brief overview of what we have been doing up until this point. Um, uh, Just to kind of get us all on the same page. Because I've been out of town for a week. um, And maybe some of you have as well. Okay, is that we're trying to look at the idea is killing sin's roots. Trying to get down to the deepest roots of our sin. Where they start and cut it off there. And we've talked a lot about how Satan lies to us. And and you could also, in a similar way, say Satan makes accusations against us and against God. Now, um, Satan is an expert at trying to root his lies and his accusations in as much reality as possible so that they seem the most plausible and convincing to us. Obviously, when Satan is lying about God, or in a sense making an accusation about God, it's never true, right? There's, there's not any hint of truth in it. And yet, based on many of our experiences and circumstances in this fallen world, it often seems true. And I'll give an example of what I mean by that in just a second. And then secondly, when he lies about us or when he makes an accusation about us, unfortunately, there is a lot of truth in it. There is a lot of accuracy, and that's what makes it so powerful and potent in our lives. Okay? Again, one of the classic examples would be that of Job. Okay? Um, virtually all of his business wiped out in one day. All of his children killed in one day. And the next day, he's deathly ill, and the wife comes to Job, and almost mimicking the language that had been spoken in the heavenly courtroom, says to him, "'Curse God and die.'" Right, so do you hear the, the lies and the accusations there? God's not worthy to be worshipped, which is certainly untrue, but it felt true because of all the tragedy that had happened. And then secondarily, your life isn't even worth living anymore. Why don't you just kill yourself? This is terrible. And that felt pretty true as well. Now, uh, we're looking at Zechariah today. So super brief context about just this book. This is after the nation of Judah had been taken into the Babylonian captivity and then some of them had been released. Probably as many as 50,000 under Ezra had come back to start rebuilding the temple. And they had made great progress, and then they had stopped. Somewhat because of external opposition, somewhat because of internal sin, and maybe just some indifference. And so God sent two prophets, one of whom was Zechariah, to get them moving again, motivating them. And he was given a series of visions to help him do that. And so he comes to have this vision, and there's this courtroom scene. And we're going to be looking at this essentially in chapter 3, okay? And let me just read. You don't have to turn there for now. Zechariah chapter 3. I'm going to read from Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2, uh, verse 15. You may be familiar with this verse. It says, In that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and then their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. And what Paul is referencing there, I think we've all experienced, that oftentimes in our minds, it feels like a courtroom drama is going on. Does it not? There are thoughts, accusing thoughts. I was talking to somebody recently, an elder at this church, who's a a business coach, an executive coach. He's like, so much of what we do is we talk to people about the negative self-talk that goes on in their mind. 
And part of what we've been looking at biblically is this, that there's an idea that there is actually, can be, a satanic power behind that. Okay? One pastor that I've quoted a couple of times, a guy named John Mark Comer, said this, Our thought patterns are the primary vehicle of demonic attack upon our souls. I mean, that's one of the things we've been trying to say all week, I mean, all quarter, because that's what the Bible says, right? I mean, when we, we talk about spiritual warfare, it's not mainly something out of a horror movie, poltergeist, or somebody's head spinning around, right? It's more just about the thoughts in our mind. Have you ever had a thought, or a feeling, or a desire, that seemed to have a will to it? An agenda that was hard to resist? You ever had that feeling? I don't want to think this thought. But it keeps coming back for some reason. Because sometimes there can be almost a demonic power behind it. Now, Satan starts as a tempter, and then he ends as a condemner. And let me kind of explain what I mean. In a sense, Satan stands in the river of sin and says, Come on, jump in. The water feels great. And so then we stupidly jump in. And then as soon as we're in the water, then what does Satan start doing? He accuses, right? How dare you? What's wrong with you? I thought you were supposed to be a good Christian. Look how filthy and nasty you are. And kind of tries to drown us in our shame and our guilt. Okay, So, three points today in this courtroom drama. Accused, acquitted, and accepted. Okay, So, uh, point one, accused. Let's look at Zechariah chapter 3, verses 1 and verse 3. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and st- Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and standing before the angel. So again, we have a courtroom scene here, the cosmic courtroom of the universe. And the angel of the Lord, so to speak, is sitting there at, behind the bench. And then Joshua the high priest. Now this is not Joshua that we know connected to Moses. This is hundreds of years later, but it's another man named Joshua who is the high priest. Remember the role of the great high priest was to represent the people of God before the throne of God. And he did that all year long. But especially one day out of the year, Yom Kippur, after many ritual bathings and sacrifices and special clothes that he was supposed to wear, so at least he looked and appeared holy before God, he would walk into the Holy of Holies to offer an atonement for the sins of all the people. And so now here he is in this courtroom drama. And it's like, I've only been to court once, okay? Too many traffic tickets once. Um, but I've seen lots of courtroom dramas, and I think they're accurate. The judge is up there, okay? The defendant is down here, and to his right hand is the prosecuting attorney. And in some sense, that is the role that Satan plays, certainly in the Old Testament, was like an overzealous policeman or a prosecuting attorney. Look at all the sin. Look at all the filth. Now, literally what it says in verse 3 is that he was dressed in clothes that were covered in human excrement. Not a very exciting thought. And just imagine if you had to go to court and you knew you were actually guilty. You've got a good lawyer. You're hoping you can get off, but you know you're actually guilty. But then right before you go in, somehow you have an accident uh, you know, you run into something and you go in just covered in filth. doesn't seem to help your case very much. Certainly not going to help your sense of confidence if you're standing there dirty, smelly before the judge. Okay, Now, in and of himself, he had no hope and neither do we. Uh, one great Old Testament commentator named Keel said this, The place of grosser idolatry had been taken by the more refined idolatry of self-righteousness, selfishness, and conformity to the world, which gave Satan a handle for his accusation. Do you understand what he's saying there? 
The nation of Judah went into captivity because they had committed really bad, outward, gross, scandalous sins like worshiping other gods. There had been some refining. They had come back. They were doing better. They weren't doing the outward idolatry thing anymore. But there was still some selfishness that had led them to quit building the temple. And so Joshua stands there. He's being accused. <coughs> at some level, he knows the accusation is true. It's real. Okay. Um, <coughs> for those of us in Christ, I think one of the things Reverend Bark used to always say is, I'm not what I used to be. Praise the Lord. Right? There's progress. But I'm sure not what I ought to be. Right? I still got a long way to go. Some of the more scandalous sins may have been taken by God's grace totally out of our life. And yet the inner refined sins remained. Okay? Now, John Calvin says about this passage, We think that God forgets us when he does not immediately help us or when things are in a confused state. And here's his point. When everything is going wrong, I mean right in our life, we tend to feel pretty good, right? I feel good with myself. I feel good with the Lord. But when my world starts falling apart, like Job for example, we're at least tempted to think, this is not good. Maybe I did something wrong. Why, why does God almost seem like he's arraigning the heavens after me? Okay. Remember, like we said, Satan will root his lies in as much reality as possible. Okay. A couple more quotes that are helpful here. Okay. Uh, Richard Lovelace said this, Satanic forces attack Christians directly in their own minds, See if this doesn't ring true with you. With disturbingly accurate accounts of their faults, seeking to discourage those who are most eager and able to work for the kingdom. He's saying, in some sense, the more passionate you are to serve God, the more you might experience this. Because Satan is trying to stop you. And if he can fill you with a sense of condemnation, shame, and being accused, you'll quit. All vital Christians are to some degree demonized. Now don't freak out. This guy's a good, reformed writer, okay? Defined to cover every phenomenon from temptation to possession. You understand what he's saying there? He's saying if you say one extreme over here is like the demon-possessed kid in the New Testament, no Christian's experiencing that. But if you say you can be affected by demons just when temptation comes, all Christians are experiencing that to some degree. Here's Sinclair Ferguson. The children of God hear the whispers of the evil one. And then this is how Sinclair Ferguson kind of imagines that Satan speaks to us. Look, you have sinned. You have broken God's law. You're under condemnation. You're not qualified to be a believer. He knows he cannot destroy the salvation of God's people, but he is bent, indeed hell-bent, as he was in Eden on destroying our peace, liberty, and joy in God. Now, let me just give a few kind of modern-day examples of how I have seen this happen in other people's lives that... I'm friends with, and I know a lot about them, okay? And uh, one young man, uh, again, grew up in a PCA church. Dad died when he was young. Mom gets remarried. Stepdad, not a great man. There was a lot of verbal and emotional abuse in the home. So this guy grows up, and kind of the, the, the lie, this kind of accusation that he just kind of hears in his mind all the time is, you're not a real man. You're just this weak, passive little boy. You're not a real man. Now, he's a grown man now with a job and serving in the church and married, but he's still really tempted to believe that at times. And at times he does just kind of act real passive. And then even when he's out there doing his best and maybe somebody's complimenting him, he's still tempted to think, it's not enough. It's not enough. Okay? I got another friend. He grew up in a pretty good home. But when he went to play <coughs> sports, 
the coaches wanted to compare him to his older brother, right? Heard this one before, right? Why can't you be like your older brother? So he just quit the sport. And then the first time he got his first real job after college, he got a pretty hard assignment, and it didn't go so well. And so he just has this pattern in his life of, you're a failure. You're not enough. You're a failure. And he's always wrestling with that. I know, I know a girl, okay, broken home. Whenever she'd go see her dad, I mean, this one's heartbreaking. Every time she'd go see her dad, like he'd pick her up for the weekend, you know, bring her to his house, and then he'd say, okay, do whatever you want. I'll be downstairs in the workshop. And he basically wouldn't talk to her for the whole weekend. What do you think that does to a little girl's heart? You're not lovable. Nobody wants to spend time with you. Now, she's come to Christ. She even worked for a ministry for a while. She's married now. But she still wrestles with any time somebody like genuinely says, hey, I'd like to get to know you or spend some time, there's this line in the back of her mind that says, no, 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 they, they must want something. They can't really just like you for who you are because you're unlovable. This accusation. I could go on. I'll stop so I don't depress us all, okay? But I just want to say this. <laughs> Satan hasn't given up, guys. It, it would be wrong to say he's alive and well. But I heard Tim Keller say one time, a wounded bear is worse than a healthy bear in some sense because the wounded bear is going to fight harder. And Satan wants to do as much damage as he can. And all of us at some level are going to struggle with these accusing thoughts in different times and different ways. I, I, I'll just share mine personally. If everybody knew all the sin in your life, past and present, all the thoughts that have gone through your mind, they, they wouldn't respect you. They would certainly not want to have you doing any kind of ministry with them. And there's enough truth in that lie that it kind of catches me every once in a while. Now, praise the Lord, the story doesn't end here. There's accusations, but there's also an acquittal. So look at verse 2. He said to me, no, excuse me, wrong chapter. All right, uh, Zechariah 3, verse 2. The Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? And then skip down to verse 4. He spoke and said to those who were standing before him, saying, Remove the filthy garments from him. Again, he said to him, See, I have taken your iniquity away from you and will clothe you with festal robes. Then I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments while the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord admonished Joshua. Okay. Now what's going on here? God speaks. We have these accusations. And again, part of what makes these accusations so powerful and potent is there's enough truth in them that they kind of get to us. Right? The one guy I mentioned, he is passive sometimes. The other guy I mentioned, he does fail sometimes. He's a human being. The one girl that I mentioned, sometimes she does do some things that makes it a little bit harder to love her because we're sinners still, right? There's enough truth that we feel accused. But that's setting us up for Satan's accusation in a sense to have a landing ground in our heart. And there's at least three things we can do wrong. And if you were here two weeks ago, this is really what we talked about two weeks ago, so I'm not going to go along on this, but it's what Adam and Eve initially did. There's three wrong ways to... Respond when we feel this shame, this guilt, this accusation. The first thing is to try to cover it up with good works. But look at all the good I'm doing. That'll never last. Right? That didn't even work at the human level. It certainly doesn't work at the divine level. Jim Boyce says, our good works might have some merit on planet Earth, but before God, it's like Monopoly money. Right? Try to go buy a car down at the Honda dealership with Monopoly money. Where's it going to get you? Nowhere. 
and where your good work is going to get you in your conscience before God, nowhere. Okay? The second thing is we just try to stuff it, to hide it, to brush over it, to minimize it. But that doesn't work either. Any of y'all ever play that game uh, at, the, at the pool during the summer, you know, where you get like a gigantic float, and you're like, I'm going to try to push it under the water and hold it down, right? And you can do it for about two seconds, and then it just pops. That's like our shame and guilt when we just try to say, I, I don't have any shame and guilt. I feel great. It'll bubble back up. And the third way is we just try to run and, and just wallow in it. Just kind of say, well, yeah, that's right. I am a sinner. I'm just such a terrible person. Woe is me. And that's, listen, those are deadly ways to try to handle your shame, your guilt, the accusation. So what should we do? Now, we haven't finished reading the passage yet. We'll get most of the chapter before we're done. But I'll just go ahead and give you a spoiler alert. Guess how much Joshua the high priest speaks in this whole chapter? He never talks. He's silent. He lets the Lord speak for him. He lets the Lord fight his battles. And that's what we should do. Just look to the Lord. And the Lord has a threefold answer for Satan's accusation. Okay? The first one is this. The Lord's choice rebukes Satan. He says, hey, I chose this one. He was in captivity. And I, I don't want to do a big history lesson here, you know, but there were a lot of ancient nations that went into captivity and they never came out again. They just got wiped out and dissolved. But Judah was brought back. God said, I plucked this one out of the fire. I chose this one. The second thing is, the Lord's cleansing rebuked Satan. I mean, Satan, I mean, God didn't say, now he didn't have any filth. He's like, he's got filth. I'm just going to take it away. But it's more than that. The Lord's covering rebuked Satan. Now listen, this is an Old Testament foreshadowing, so to speak, of double imputation, right? If you wanted a little bit of a deep theological word, there you go, all right? Double imputation. How many of you have ever heard this phrase said before? You know, if you're hearing somebody try to explain justification and they say, justification means <clears throat> just as if I'd never sinned. Anybody ever heard that before? Listen, that's good, but it's only 50% good. It's half the truth, it's not the whole truth. It's, yes, just as if I'd never sinned and just as if I had committed 33 years of perfect, sinless, spotless righteousness. That's what's written down on my record in heaven in the courtroom of the universe, if you're in Christ. Listen, sometimes I hear people explain salvation like, you know, God will wipe all your sins away. It's like, He'll give you a blank slate. Well, that sounds really good at first. And then you just remember who you are for about three seconds. And you're like, well, that sounds terrible. Because now I'm just going to feel doubly guilty. Because God's going to give me this blank slate, and then I'm going to screw it up again. It's going to be dirty again. <laughs> no, no. God gives you the righteous record of Christ. God strips off the dirty robes of our sin, and he puts on us the royal robe of righteousness, the glorious nature of his son. Okay? He's totally acquitted, past, present, and future. But guys, it doesn't even stop there. The good news keeps getting better. Keep going. Look at verse 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways, and if you will perform my service, then you will also govern my house and also have charge of my courts, and I will grant you free access among those who are standing here. The third point is just that we're accepted. I think it was Charles Hodge, the great Princeton Presbyterian years ago, that said this, talking about our salvation. He said, listen, it doesn't just mean you're free to go. It means you're free to come. 
right? I mean, the mental image that I use in my mind sometimes, it's like the judge lands the gavel and says, not guilty, court's adjourned. But then the judge gets up and he takes off his judge robe and he walks down there to me and he puts his arm around me and says, now listen, I heard you're an orphan. You used to be a child of Satan, but now you've been set free. I'd like to adopt you into my family. Right? God doesn't just want a legal relationship with us. He wants a familial relationship with us, an intimate relationship with us. And that's what we get in Christ. Okay? Now, there's at least two great dangers of how we can respond to all this truth. The first would be legalism, some form of legalism. Okay? Which, again, that can show up in a couple of different ways. One is the legalism of despair. If I really want to know God and walk with God, I've got to be perfect, and I'm trying, but I can't. Ah, you know, that, that doesn't work well. You know, I know some people in life that you know, say, well, I'm a perfectionist. It's like, well, that, that's just a bad way to live, right? Because you're just guaranteed going to be disappointed. It's not going to work out well for you. But the other way that legalists tend to do it, and this seems to be a lot of what the Pharisees did in the New Testament, is they just minimize the law. They right-size the law. So that then they can say, well, I am doing pretty good. But that's a lie. That's a deception. But listen, here's the other danger that God is really, I think, addressing in verse 7 is it's lawlessness or antinomianism. Right? And listen, this is the one that I see a ton on the college campus, but it, it doesn't go out of style at age 22. If this whole thing about Jesus dying for all my sins, past, present, and future is true, right? It's like I get a get-out-of-jail or get-out-of-hell-free card. This is amazing. Let me go party my brains out. And just celebrate and basically abuse God's grace. Terrible way to live. God says, yeah, listen, I've covered you in righteousness. And yet now I want you to walk as much as you can. It will never be perfect in practical righteousness. And guys, here's a a real practical truth for all of us in this. To the degree that by God's grace and power, I really am trying to walk closer with the Lord and serve Him and obey Him, the power of those accusing thoughts will be minimized. They'll go away. Not totally, but somewhat. Right? Because I can never be totally sinless in this life. But they will be lessened. And so I've always got to go back to, yes, I'm going to do my best, but ultimately I'm hoping in Christ and His finished work. Now, a couple thoughts by way of application. All right. There can be a temptation to say, this is in the Old Testament, it's before the cross. This doesn't happen for us anymore. Number one, experience totally is against that. And then good old John Calvin is as well. Okay, here's what he says. Christ never performs the work of the priesthood, but that Satan stands at his side and devises all means by which he may remove and withdraw Christ from his office. Do you hear what he's saying? I mean, if the Lord Jesus Christ is standing in the courtroom of God today praying for his people, as we are told that he's are, it's like Satan is still doing everything he can to screw up the effects of that. He knows he can't win, but he can cause a lot of damage. Richard Lovelace again said this, Most of the devil's advantage depends on the ability to move among human affairs undetected. So, so here's what I'm really after this whole quarter for myself and for us. The more aware that we can be of how Satan personally pursues us personally condemns us, personally attacks, personally tempts, the more prepared that we will be so we won't continually fall back into the same old sinful patterns. 
But if we're just kind of haphazard and kind of generic in our Christianity, we will probably, unfortunately, fall back into the same sinful patterns over and over and over again. And so why even did I share some specific personal examples of other people myself is I, I really, I think it will be healthy for us to try to say, look back at my past life, look at my current life, and what are the ways that Satan tries to lie to me personally? How does he root it in reality? How does he try to accuse me personally? And again, then what you can do is learn how to speak back biblical truth to those lies. Okay? And I'll give you an example in just a second. All right, a couple more verses here from Zechariah. Look at verse 8. Now listen, Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who are sitting in front of you, which is probably the other priest. Indeed, they are men who are a symbol. The whole Old Testament priesthood, in a sense, was a symbol. For behold, I am going to bring my servant, the branch. For behold, the stone that I have set before Joshua, on one stone are seven eyes. Behold, I will engrave an inscription on it, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. Now, keep your finger there and flip to the New Testament, to Hebrews chapter 10. And while you're flipping there, let me just say this. There's, a, there's some language there in verse 8 and 9. Let's be honest. It's just weird to us, right? As modern, western, 21st century American Christians. It would not have been weird to Joshua and to Zechariah. These were Old Testament prophetic language and symbols of the coming Messiah. The branch. My servant. This son of David. This coming one who's going to be a king and a priest at the exact same time. Now, the one part of verse 8 and 9 that's probably the clearest to us is that last phrase, right? I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. We know what that's referring to. Look at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10. By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. There is no more a need for an ongoing, every year, annual Yom Kippur for the high priest to go into the Holy of Holies because the veil's already been torn. Because the once and for all, spotless, sinless Son of God, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, who had no shame of his own, he had no filth of his own, but he went to the cross... And like all of our moral perversity got dumped on him. All of our filth on him. And he was punished there for it. So that now in him we get the royal robes of righteousness. We're spotless in Christ. But guys, this is huge. Unfortunately, there is a big difference between mental theology and the functional theology of their heart. Is there not? I won't even take time to flip there. But Psalm chapter 35, which is written by David. David knew a lot of truth. He's, he's an author of the Bible. But Psalm 35, verse 3, the last phrase, he says this. He's praying to God and he says, Say to my soul, I am thy salvation. You understand what he's praying there? He's like, God, I know you're my salvation. I want to feel like you're my salvation. I'm asking you to speak it personally into my soul. And that's what I'm after for us, is a deeper experiential knowledge of God is my personal Savior who stands up 
and speaks back and rebukes all the accusations that keep coming at me, no matter how much truth remain in them. I mean, this high priest in Zechariah, he was supposed to represent the nation, but he had to have somebody else represent him. I mean, he was clothed in his own sin and the sin of the nation, and he had to be stripped and cleansed and covered. But the one true high priest, the Lord Jesus, who represents us, he didn't have to do that because he is pure and spotless. So we're going to end like this, and it may be a little bit different than the way that you tend in Sunday school, uh, certainly adult Sunday school. I'm going to read a few verses from Romans chapter 8, maybe the high point of the entire Bible. And here's what I'm going to encourage you to do. You don't have to do it if you don't want to, okay? It's free country. Is to close your eyes and just imagine yourself in a courtroom scene, being accused by Satan, but then hearing these words spoken to you and for you personally. Okay? I'm not going to read the whole chapter. Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 1. Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending His Son, His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Verse 15. For you have not received a spirit of slavery, leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption, as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, so that we also may be glorified with Him. Verse 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom He predestined, He also called. And these whom He called, He also justified. And these whom He justified, He also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? But he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who was raised, who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword, just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered, but in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Lord Jesus, I pray for everyone listening to this that you would, in a very personalized and experiential way, freshly speak to our souls and say, I am your salvation. I pray that you would give us wisdom and insight about how Satan personally lies to us, accuses us, tempts us, deceives us, so that we could be more aware to fight sin, 
to repent of sin, to, to stop sin before it even starts. But when we do fall again in sin, as will inevitably happen at some level, I pray that we would never try to cover it up or lie about it or minimize it or spin it, but we would be quick to confess and run to you, the one who is glad to cleanse us from all our unrighteousness. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of Truth Wars with Dr. Olin Stubbs. If you have any questions for Olin, please email him at olin.stubbs at campusoutreach.org. 